Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, and I'm coming to you from Brooklyn with a summer solstice greeting. This year, we're saying so long to spring with a bit of a bang, as here in the U.S., the Juneteenth holiday and Father's Day start the week. In observation or tribute to these events, for this week's episode, I've curated a glocally speaking conversation as an expression of thoughts, sentiments, and realities around citizenship, education, fatherhood, activism, history, and culture. Rhonda Zalenzi Green from episode 92 kicks off the conversation with ideas on the necessary framework for the most global citizenship of all, digital citizenship. Next is father, yogi, and caparista, Salim Rollins from episode 37. He guides us in experience and in language from Kenya back to the U.S. and finally settling in Kenya with his family. Closing out this spring remix is Nyamal Tutil from episode 102 with a locally speaking potpourri from communications during times of conflict to a lesson in what is probably Africa's most common lingua franca, food. No passport required, grab a snack, relax and let the sound be your transport. The dialogue that needs to be held is really, you know, getting to the heart of what governments fear. And I think, you know, probably a lot of people would say that a government that fears its people is a healthy government, right? Because you never rest on your laurels. But I think, you know, what activists, the the citizenry can do is to, to ask for and push for more resources that will help, you know, make kind of change. Because returning to what I said about us being infants using these adult tools, Mm -hmm. you know, technology has leapfrogged ahead of what we are able to comprehend in the sense of how we can appropriate it. I think when everything came out about Facebook and what they have been doing since 2014 in terms of data selling, targeting, misinformation, disinformation, I would have never believed it until you saw the scale of just what they did. But Mm -hmm. not having that literacy and that awareness that something like that was possible you know, made Mm. me a prime target for what bad actors were trying to achieve. So knowledge is power. And that is how we need to to address this in the first instance. We can't, you know, address something that we don't even know is a problem. And the fact that most curricula make no space anymore for any kind of, you know, civics education, social contract, any of that, that's a yeah. huge problem the world over. It exactly. I I would echo that most definitely. Like being in education in in Ghana and Africa, I see that it's a very not well rounded, as you said. Yeah. Very. I don't even know if it's tools because you know math and English and science without context of the real world is pointless. Actually. Definitely. So, so what does it mean to be a digital citizen? What, what would you describe as what that process is and, and who, who is, who, who leads that? Sure. What I, I think it means to be a digital citizen, there are incredible people working in this space that I, that I'm aware of. So one woman I'd like to, um, to, to pay respect to Amashu is um, <clears throat> a British Ghanaian activist called Shei Akiwolo. Um, okay. And she's based in the UK. 
Okay. And she coined the term digital self-care. And a lot of her work sprung forth from a speech that she gave in the, the European Parliament that generated a lot of very racialized, mis- misogynist abuse directed her way. And she, her organization called Glitch uh, came about because she's like, there is a, a glitch in the system. Like something is fundamentally wrong when, you know, we would never dream of saying these kind of things face to face, but online we will say anything. And so mm-hmm. digital citizenship to me, like, you know, in the United States, pre-Trump, let's say, uh, right. it was not okay to be openly racist face-to-face to someone, right? You right. know, that's changed slightly now, but generally, the general public thinks it's abhorrent. Even if they are that way in private, no one wants to be that in public. And it's the same thing, you know, online, publicly, people are awful. Like, people will mm-hmm. say it, not only say it with their chest, but have themselves so easily traceable that you know who it is who has said these things. And so I think the idea that, you know, we need to have this social contract, not just for the people that we encounter face-to-face in our daily lives, but also those people that we encounter in the digital sphere is one of the things that needs to happen. And, and there's so many people like Shade that are doing incredible work in the space to, to raise awareness, to say, hey, we need to talk about this. And not only do we need to talk about it, we need to operationalize it in a way that is going to have positive impact. So they do a lot of things around workshops and um, things like that, how to stay safe online. There's a lot of engagement that is done um, with the various social, various social media platforms to get them to put in safeguards that, hey, it may affect their metrics or whatever, but at the end of the day, it's also going to keep people safe online. We don't have to watch right. another live stream suicide. We don't have right. to watch another you know incident of racial abuse against notable people just because they don't make the 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 game winning score you know mm-hmm. we, we don't mm-hmm. have to live with that that doesn't have to be our reality but mm-hmm. until we kind of advocate for that change and recognize that while we have done a lot and have made a lot of progress even in our face to face interactions we still have a bit of a ways to go and i think the disconnect that people see between the online sphere and the the the, the face to face physical sphere um, needs to be disrupted because increasingly our technologies that we have in our lives are metaphorical and in sometimes, in some cases, literal extensions of ourselves. And so what mm. does that mean for how we interact with each other? No one has really sat down and kind of wrote a treaty on what this means or what it could look like in practice. And I think you know, devoting more time and resources to that and and from a people perspective. So not asking the tech platforms to come up with something. It has to come from the people, like, you know, what people will want to know or see happen. Um, That's what I think we need. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like part of that starts with 
really going back to what it, what education is, what are the basics of education? Because we, you know, in the West, we have the luxury of devices and having these, these tools in the classrooms. But as you're saying, I don't believe that there, in ICT education that I've seen abroad, it's just about the device. It's yes. not really about what it means. And, and as you said, the, the metaphorical extension of who you are and how you present and how you tell your story to the world. So Hmm. Something to definitely think about. Like education policy has a, a long ways to go. I, yes. I feel, yeah, there's some some real <laughs> rethinking that's that's necessary. So speaking about citizenship, let me ask you my global speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. I asked my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as global speak. Ooh, gosh, I would say... Uh intersectionality, oh, <laughs> which, which okay. I know is a, a buzzword. Um, uh-huh. But I think for me, every time I engage with literature around that or with people who understand what that means, for me, it, it is the starting point for empathy, mm. developing empathy for other people, being able to see, even if you don't agree, being able to see things from someone else's perspective, mm-hmm. being able to listen without the need to like, okay, I'm listening just so I can respond, but listening for listening's sake. Right. Uh, I think that, yeah, that is the the word for me that has so much meaning. Um, and I value it because it, it, it has helped me to see the world in a way that I think is much more nuanced Mm -hmm. and yeah. Spent a bit of time in Nairobi in uh, 2008. We thought we were going to stay at that time. Um, We conceived our first child, our daughter, Aza, and we decided not to stay for multiple reasons. Fatima had to, she didn't have U.S. citizenship. And then there were some things about having our children born outside of the U.S. in terms of immigration and how that Worked, and you see how how all of this stuff gets twisted in terms of politics. Like, who has a right to, to do certain things politically? Or, or Trump at one point was really challenging Obama, who wasn't born because technically you're not supposed to run for certain positions in higher office if you're born outside of the U.S. and it's not on like a military base. So there were certain things that informed our decision to move back to the U.S. So we moved to to Oakland at that point. Yeah, and we, uh, you know, we spent five years there. It was great. And then there came a point where actually Fatima said, okay, I'm ready to go home. And it was kind of like that. It was kind of abrupt. <laughs> I was like, wait, okay. I've got something <laughs> now in Oakland. I have a Capoeira group and an amazing job. And so I had to like work through the little mind talk that was like, it's not time yet. And realize, no, it actually is a great time to transition back to the continent. And there's so much family support for our kids and, and for us in Kenya. I mean, to me, some of the big advantages as a father, I would say, is actually being, one, being in an African country, in in an African country where my kids' teachers are Black, where there's not, where they don't need to experience life going through this racialized lens and experience that really, you know, creates all of these, you know, kind of what I think these, these fabricated differences you know, between people. They exist here, certainly, but there's a lot of reinforcement of who they are as people and as Black youth. You know, it's not like 
an exception to the rule that you have a black president. That's how it's going to be, or that your teacher or whomever. So I felt like on a psychological level, they're not that my kids would have so many advantages growing up here in terms of seeing themselves as the rule, you know, seeing them, themselves as the standard, as instead of kind of having to do all the work that, that a lot of us have had to do to kind of unlearn, you know, some of the conditioning, a lot of the, the hundreds of years of conditioning as people of color and as, as black people in the U.S. So, so to me, giving them the, them the opportunity to kind of sh- have, a, have a, just a different worldview, you know, and to really kind of be seated in a place where they saw themselves reflected like everywhere was a huge advantage. And that's true for me too. Just my experience, you know, not having to constantly fight this thing or have this, this weight that, that's there in the U.S. around right. being in a, such a racialized, you know, and we see how tensions have been erupting recently and they always have been. So, yeah, so I think that had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So do you actually recognize that difference in your children, like that they, do they see themselves as African children? Do they see themselves as, as American children there? Just how has that transition been for your children? Definitely both, which is actually to me the ideal scenario. It's not to mm-hmm. negate that they're also American as well. Yes. Right? So they have, in fact, they have two passports, which again is a huge advantage. It's very easy, surprisingly easy to get for them to get a Kenyan passport here, actually. So that process was, in spite of the other numerous challenges I've personally had with immigration in Kenya, that piece was very easy, fortunately. Mm -hmm. That's great, Mm -hmm. because that, to me, again, sets them up. I mean, I love that they have the opportunity if they want to do business, if they want to work, if they want to own property, if they want to live in Kenya, that's just given. That's a given. Mm -hmm. They don't need to do anything. Likewise in the U.S., you know, and I think they'll probably do both in their life. So I think they identify as American and Kenyan. Uh, we go back to, to the U.S. In, in non-COVID time. In the last few years, we've gone back every summer. So July, August, we're typically in the U.S. to see my parents, their grandparents, and I have work that I do in the summertime. Um, mm-hmm. so made a point to keep that connection as well, um, not just with the U.S., but with, with the family um, on a nice. regular basis. My mom came here February, spent a month, which was amazing. So, um, so they, when they go back, they really kind of, you know, we keep them engaged in really amazing programs in the summer, Destiny Art Center in Oakland, where I used to work. They do dance theater and martial arts with an integrated violence prevention program. This is a youth arts organization. So they do that in the summers, typically. They love it. Mm-hmm. And they, so they get, you know, they still get kind of the culture, you know, the music, you know, the way people speak, the conversations that are happening, they're different, especially in the Bay, a lot of different so to me, it's great that they kind of get exposed to some of that, but they're not inundated with the information all the time. I think sometimes my opinion is that youth in the U.S., depending where you live and what community you're in, sometimes there's so much information. And sometimes we expect them to really like to have to articulate, you know, if it's gender pronouns, if it's this, that, and the other, and having to really suss out things that, in my opinion, it's like, you know, does nine-year-old really need to have that much information or really try and sort out certain things around if it's sexual identity or if it's, or just the media that comes in is so heavy and so mm-hmm. and is so clever at kind of catching youth's attention and shifting how they think. So this kind of, you know, want, want culture in the U.S. Mm-hmm. is a 
product of capitalism in a lot of ways, the, the kind of capitalism that's practiced in the U.S. And so, so that, I noticed that when I go back and because I, I teach kids a lot. And so I just, I noticed that. And I feel like here in Nairobi, it's just much more, there's a bit more space for them to kind of sure. grow into being adults, to not being inundated with targeted marketing. I mean, yeah. it's there, it's here, but it's much less than in the U.S. Right. Right, right. No, I, I definitely recognize that. Yeah. yeah, it's a very, very different different experience. So last question about your children. Do they speak any local language? Not really well. I think, okay. I think we fell short in that area. I think that probably, like, once you get into parenting, it's just like, it's like kind of go, go, go. And I think that, you know, their mom speaks, I speak Swahili. Portuguese. Their mom does speak Swahili and Somali. She's Kenyan Somali, some Italian and English. I mean, this mm-hmm. is pretty typical in Kenya. I'd say most Kenyans are trilingual. They'll speak their own ethnic languages. There are 42 ethnic groups in Kenya. They'll speak mm-hmm. Swahili, which is kind of, you know, spoken by all the ethnic groups, and English. Um, so okay. most Kenyans, like, you know, have, you know, are trilingual to some extent. Depending on the education, yeah. it might be less English, you know, or, sure. or less of their ethnic language. But a lot, a lot are. That's pretty common. So in school, they have Kiswahili and they have French. They go to a Waldorf okay. school in Nairobi. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So they have kind of phrases, you know, and they can communicate some things, but they are not like flowing in Kiswahili. That's something we need to work on. Yet. Yeah. They're not flowing yet. <laughs> Great. Yes. Correct. Right. 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 So this is great segue into my local speak question. So in my local speak question, I ask, we want to hear what you hear. So I ask my guests to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as local speak. <laughs> That's right. You did mention this one. So now I got to think of, well, okay, good. I'd say a, a one of the most common expressions here is sawa, sawa, sawa. Um, okay. Which basically means it's it's cool. You know, mm-hmm. everything's cool. Everything's all right. I think it's important here because it. I find, and I've spent time in, in West Africa, one of the things I appreciate about East Africa and Kenya is there's a certain softness to the way people move. Mm-hmm. I, the narrative I make is that I feel like West Africa is kind of, has a more masculine energy. And I think East Africa has a more feminine or West Africa is more fire. When you think of the music, for example, the percussion, just like, you know, it's, it's driving all the time. The climate's even, you know, um, and the people, it's a bit faster. You know, people are kind of, East Africa is like very poly poly, like, like slow, slow, you know. So the kind Interesting. of- Interesting, okay. The Sawa Sawa kind of like mentality or feeling is like, you know, no, it's, you know, and, and you find this in, granted, most African countries, but it's kind of even more so when you come to Kenya. Like, you'll feel like people are really slow, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> mentally slow, but like they're moving slow through the world, which sure. by reference is probably true. And, you know, it's sort of some, one of the things, and again, I know you've been through this, part of the kind of mental um, and emotional adjustment and transition of like kind of starting to um, get in the flow of the culture here is learning how to slow down, you know, Yes. just learning yes. how to, and I know, you know, again, Ghana definitely as well, anywhere on the continent for the most part, which is, is great, you know, because we, I feel like we really get into this, you know, this hurried kind of mindset, which brings on so much stress and is like, you know, it's kind of 
we're oriented around productivity in the West and in the U.S. so much. Mm-hmm. Same thing, you know, or completing or on to the next thing, you know, mm-hmm. not just kind of being, you know, I think that people are comfortable. We're more comfortable just being here. You don't have, you're not expected to always be mm-hmm. doing, 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 going, going. So Poly Poly is another one that I like. Slow, slow, take your time. There's no rush. Okay, so so sawa, 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 and poly poly. Like you know, when you say something twice, oftentimes it's, it's yes, tempest, yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, very good. So we have some local speak from Kenya. You know, a lot of issues are happening in East Africa, but they're never known to the West. Exactly. Right? And yeah. our loudest cousins of all are the Nigerians. I'll be calling them in lovingly. I don't call people out. In restorative justice, we call people in. Right? Ah, uh-huh. okay. Yes, okay. we call you in lovingly. Okay. Uh, we don't call you out because when you're calling somebody out, you know, you're... you're, you're it's, it's negative. Yeah, it's exactly. negative. I'm calling yeah. you in lovingly. Right? Ah, um, uh-huh. Yeah, because for us, it's like... it's. it's I remember when NSTAR was happening and I was, you know, and that was during like clubhouse days. Oh, like early, yeah, early, early last year, yeah, early yeah, clubhouse yeah. where yeah. I learned so much about Nigeria, the people, mm-hmm. the movement and all of that. And a lot of us East Africa were in those spaces. We're like, how can we help? What can we do? All mm-hmm. of these things, because we knew if Nigeria falls yeah, we're, what we're next? fucked. Yeah, <laughs> as right. Africans, we're right. all fucked, right? right? But what issues are happening to us in the East is like often, you know, West Africans have a lot more voice on social media, a lot more voice mm. on mm-hmm. the, in the mm-hmm. internet. Nothing, right? Nothing. Right. So we're like, how do we balance each other's stories? Sure. And we're not, you know, it's like this borderless thing that we're talking about. It's yeah. like, okay, my family's hurting on the other side. Yeah. What can I do yeah. to pick them up and say, hey, yeah. like right now, Sudan doesn't have internet. No news is coming out of Sudan. And I think that's why. Because Mm -hmm. our challenge is is that the governments on that side Mm -hmm. are much more effective at shutting it it down. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, Mm -hmm. I was listening to a program just the other day. It's like, the issue is that we have governments that have the ability to shut Mm -hmm. out all communication. Mm -hmm. And then that there is the issue with with holding back the public and silencing and holding us back from even being able to say something. Mm -hmm. So I can honestly say... I have found it difficult to really understand mm-hmm. everything that's going on. Because you're right, there's yeah. a lot going on mm-hmm. in East Africa. So until the BBC decides to cover oh, it in girl. a certain way, mm-hmm. maybe Al Jazeera, <laughs> you know, then, yeah. then we might really yeah. know what the story is. But the, the those who are like the, I want to say the citizen journalists yeah. who are really, mm-hmm. who we rely on, they don't have a way out. Yeah. And so I hear you. And there's many yeah. people in the diaspora that are speaking. So I think it's a matter of us making sure that your, fo- your base that you're following is diverse. It's not yes. just, you know. So yes. for me, people be like, wait, how do you know this is popping off here, there? I'm like, because ah, you've my, work. my yeah. friends, my yeah. circle, even me being here, sure. I met our friend, we met in Cuba, right? Yeah. It's like, and then now I'm meeting you like, hey, yeah. like yeah. truly being global citizens, making mm-hmm. sure that your circle is not the same, right? Mm-hmm. Being mm-hmm. able to say, I could say right now in my circle, it's like, I pretty much have global people in my and mm-hmm. it's in not just yeah in my yeah. network yeah. yeah 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 wow um but i appreciate that that's mm-hmm. that's really insightful in terms of yeah we all have our own struggles so mm-hmm. we all have to be able to live it and still advocate in the way that we can mm-hmm. so i i appreciate yeah. that and i will do a little bit of research listeners just to kind of give a summary as much as i can about how 
we can help mm-hmm. with the conflict in, in Ethiopia and, yeah. and understanding. I have some friends in Addis and they're like, mm-hmm. oh, we're okay here. No, Addis is fine. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of um, misinformation that's happening. Yes. So even the news that's happening is, 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 is problematic. The mm-hmm. way the West has been posting mm-hmm. and the way that media is also being used as a weapon of war also. Of course. So it, getting the right opinion is mm-hmm. really difficult right now, particularly with this uh, Eth- Ethiopian conflict. Yeah. Where South Sudan, uh, they're in the process of implementing a peace agreement that was signed in 2016, because the first one that was broker in Ethiopia fell apart in 2016 so they got another one okay they're trying to implement that and that's going really really slow so right. hopefully nothing pops off right <laughs> okay. right 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 yeah that's, that's a whole workshop yeah it is <laughs> on the, the region like that general region mm-hmm. and i feel like it probably is a workshop in the tribal dynamics as opposed to the country dynamics yeah. so that we would mm-hmm. really understand, mm-hmm. okay, why are these things breaking down, the yeah. way that they're breaking down, and how do we empower the people who are there? Because everyone was really happy when South Sudan oh became my its God. own country. And then, how, what is it now, almost 10 years it's later? It's 10 years old, yeah. Yeah, it's 10. 10 years and later, we're st- we're kind of still wondering, how yeah. how is it, how is a new the newest nation in the world, right? No, girl. Barbados. Barbados are oh, younger yes. siblings. Listen, hold up. <laughs> Barbados with Bad yes. Girl Riri being the... Yes. No, Barbados is our youngest sibling, right? As yeah. of last week. Yeah. And I, I joke in my circle of friends, I'm like, we need to tell these South Sudanese politician uncles, they can't use this excuse of, oh, well, I, you know, we're the youngest country, we're still a baby. Ah, you're 10 years old. You're eating yes. You're eating fufu and banku. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you have teeth. Yes. <laughs> Barbados is the new baby now, so you people get your act together. Together. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Banku, actually, yeah. we uh, in Arabic it's called Asida. Asida. Yeah. Ah, mm-hmm. okay. So when our friend was telling me, "Oh, we need to try Banku," I'm like, "Yay!" I went try Banku. I was like, "This is." A- <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "This is Banku. Ooh, this is Asida." Yes. And except Banku, it's a little bit softer because I think oh, okay. you guys use cassava in it too. Sometimes, yeah. Okay, sometimes. Because yeah, somebody yeah. told me like in a different region of it, you guys just use a mill- millet. The corn or millet. Yeah, corn, so yeah. it could be corn, it could okay. be millet. But yeah, so yeah. might So add... acida for us is corn, right? Ah, okay, yeah. okay, okay, so okay. in Arabic, it's called acida. In my newer language, we call it mean. Mean. Uh-huh. Ah. And then in Amharic, we have something similar, but okay. we call it gumfo. Gunfo. Gunfo. Okay. Yep. So the same kind yeah, of like mm-hmm. ball, the same ball texture. Yep. And then you, you eat yeah. it with different so sauces. With, so with gunfo, it's literally almost like a lava. Like a, like, oh. yeah, like, like a lava. Yep. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, and then it's hot. Yeah. So sweet. basically you'll put it uh, in the bowl and then in the middle, you'll put the sauce in the middle. So it uh, looks like, it looks like a volcano. It's, it's prettier. Yeah. It's prettier. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's prettier. So wait, so you have banku with what? So we do with okra. Okra yeah, stew. We do okra oh, stew. Do? Yeah. Oh, girl. Our food is the same. Listen, watch Auntie Dr. Harris, you know, with the yeah. High on the Hog. Ah, okay, yeah. okay, okay. So High on the Hog, phenomenal, phenomenal documentary mm-hmm. on Netflix. Yep. And Dr. Harris, she's 
yes. does the connection of, of food yeah. and all of that stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh, fabulous woman. I had an opportunity to meet her in the summer. Oh, nice. But she talks about okra and how it, okra migrated from West Africa with the enslaved and then even in the U.S., yes. right? Yes. So during the summer, I was in the South and I was like, oh, fried okra, let me try it because mm. I love okra. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we have it with okra. We also have it with uh, collard greens. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we make yeah. Uh, collard greens. Kind of like our yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we have it with different stews. You can have yeah. it with different stews. So there was a phenomenal spot that our friend took me to. Which and one? I had, I forgot the name. And this friend is, um, for those of you, he was on an episode, Asari Ajay, our yes. artist, architect, renaissance man. So... I'll leave in the show notes his episode as well. Yeah, so mm-hmm. Asari took me to this place, and I was like, yo! And I had okra uh, with banku. I was like, ah, praise <laughs> black Jesus. <laughs> was it, oh, was it um, the one in East Legon? No, 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 no. Okay. We don't do bougie. We do local. Ah, like, I'm an spots. African woman. Ah, I'm an African woman, right? I don't do bougie. I left the West to come here for what? No, it was a local spot. I'm literally going to find the name because it was really good because I'm a vegetarian in the yes. States and mm-hmm. I grew up an Adventist. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, ah, I'm going back to Africa. Mm. I'm going to Accra, West Africa. All they do is meat. So I, be- I chose to become a pescatarian while I'm here, which oh, okay. means I'm eating fish. Okay. Uh, and eggs. Uh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in Ethiopia, there's such a variety of yeah, veggie, different yeah, veggie and, and also yeah. vegan. So when I'm there, I, it's okay for me to find food. Sure. But while I'm here, I was like, eh. Yeah, it's a bit challenging. It's um, interesting you say that because you're leaving mm-hmm. next weekend is the... Um, vegetarian festival, oh. which I just yesterday met with the gentleman who's running it, and hopefully I'll have him as, on a guest mm-hmm. soon. But basically highlighting, you know, that there are options, and he said next year it's going to be even bigger because they got big sponsorship, and it's going to be a regional thing. So, nice. so we're trying. Oh, we're trying Asanka local. Uh huh. Okay. Asanka local is where I went. <laughs> oh my god, I had the best okra. Soup with banku. Okay. I didn't know you people, you guys do soup and, and stews yes. differently. So yes. I like the soup style. Uh, yes. I like the soup style. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was really nice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you did it have fish in it? No, I had fish in it. Yeah. Okay. 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 So I have to check that out. Yes. Me, I don't, I can't eat corn, so I can't eat banku. Aww. But I, you know, it's I make okay. do. No. Oh, no, fufu. I, don't, I just don't like fufu. Ah! I mean, quite honestly, <laughs> I know, exactly, exactly. I'm such I've, a, like... I've turned into an Africa. Ah. I know. And fufu is, like, one of my, my father's favorite dishes. And we ate... The, this is what happened. Okay. Growing up in the U.S., fufu was not the fufu. No, 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 no. It was mashed It was potatoes. Fla- Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, it was lighter, easy to swallow, yeah. you know, it's fine, right? I have an issue with you people swallowing fufu. Oh, the swallow. Fufu. I was swallow like, food. They were like, swallow. I'm like, no, I'm going to chew. <laughs> like, the other day, I was telling sorry. I was like, ooh, I did it twice. I swallowed twice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we grew up with chew your food, taste your food, yeah, right? Now you want yeah. me to swallow it? Ah. Yeah, it's a strange yeah, phenomenon. So, you know, growing up, you do the swallow. And then coming here, I just was like, it's heavy. Mm-hmm. And not to be diet friendly but it's like just extra calories like it doesn't I love the soup though I love soup but just Mm -hmm. to have the calories for that purpose which I mean I don't live a lifestyle that I need the calories but I I can totally see how and why Mm -hmm. that is the way that that you know that we eat it not dissing it I just it's just not survival food that's exactly it's survival food that's the same thing with acida exactly like exactly yeah yeah 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Global Citizens. As always, you can catch us with new episodes every Tuesday at www.globalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Do us a favor, like, rate, share, give us a review. It helps others find great content. And until next time, happy summer and bye for now.